So progesterone has a role in keeping the muscles tight in the throat. And then as we transition through to postmenopause, we lose that muscle tone that that progesterone has given us. You know, we talk about resistance training, but we're not talking about are we tightening up the, the throat muscles, the tongue muscles to keep that airway open? Because all these muscles help bring air in and out of their body. And if we're not actively training those, then they're not going to be as strong. So that is going to impact how we breathe. Dr. Louise Oliver is a GP who knows that hormones affect how we breathe and that how we breathe affects our health and well-being. I'm Liz Earle and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. And it's my mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Now, we breathe automatically. It doesn't require conscious control. So we perhaps don't really think about it a huge amount, but we should because our breathing affects every cell tissue, organ and system in the body. And I know for myself that I often catch myself shallow breathing and just not paying enough attention to how I can regulate how much better I feel just by focusing on how I breathe, something I actually first discovered on an earlier podcast episode of this show with the breath expert James Nestor. Well, I'm especially interested today to look even further at how our hormones affect our breathing as well as better sleep, something that really resonates I know with this audience here. So as well as being a GP, Louise is also a functional breathing practitioner and a therapeutic life coach. And she's here to make sure we're all breathing efficiently so we can keep ourselves as healthy as possible through menopause particularly and beyond. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, very warm welcome, Louise. I'm very conscious, actually, as I sit here, that I should be breathing better, probably. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we're going to learn a lot and I'm going to not catch myself so shallow breathing. Now, you have been a GP with a particular interest in women's health for over 20 years, and, and we'll come to breathing in just a moment. But can I start by asking you what changes you've noticed, particularly in HRT prescribing over that time? I started my GP training probably just about six months before um, the big study that changed everything. So um, I have 
ridden the roller coaster ride of HRT. So years ago, it was a lot more oral prescribing and synthetic progestogens. And now obviously, it's very different. And there was a period of time that not many women wanted HRT at all. So I've seen a complete different different spectrum from at the beginning of my career to what I'm prescribing now. That's really interesting. And I'm glad that you've actually mentioned the difference, because of course, that awful study, which we're still getting over the legacy of, 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 you know, basically flawed interpretation of data, was based on the old style oral estrogen, and as you say, synthetic progesterone or progestogens even. And now, of course, you know, modern HRT, transdermal, you know, has been shown to be so effective and so safe. And the body identical micronized progesterone in particular. So yeah, I'm really pleased that you highlight that. So you've, you've seen a, a, a pickup, have you? Oh, definitely. Um, obviously, I did a lot of prescribing at the beginning of my career, then very little in the middle. And then obviously, more recent years, um, there's a lot more interest in HRT. And the what I've found is um, micronized progesterone is definitely better tolerated than than the synthetic uh, progestogens that I used to prescribe. Mm. And women are definitely seem to be getting benefits from it. So yes, the, the difference is, is quite marked, really. Yeah, good, good. Well, long may that continue. So let's turn our attention to breathing. That's the main focus of today. At what point in your career did you hit upon breathing as a particular area of uh, interest or importance even? It was a very random journey in it and it wasn't a planned thing at all. Um, and the honest answer was I was in a, an appraisal a number of years ago and I hadn't planned what I was going to learn about over the next 12 months. And I, I just said mindfulness. Um, and I've been on a very unstructured, unplanned journey. And throughout that time, I discovered how breathing is linked to the autonomic nervous system. So that system where all our unconscious processes are controlled and actually by how you breathe you can actually steer that system and in addition to that along that journey I became a perimenopausal snorer and that affected how I functioned um, completely Uh and then I corrected how I breathed and my snoring stopped and then I could function again Ooh. and I wasn't grumpy and my <laughs> husband and I could be back in the same bed. And then I th- had a very profound moment actually with a patient in a, in a when I was fitting a contraceptive coil. And at that moment, I thought there's, there's something so powerful about this. People, I want to train, I want to learn more about it and, and I want to help others to benefit. Wow. Now, fitting the contraceptive coil, presumably that is releasing a little bit of progesterone progesterone even yeah. it, it, was that part of the process or, or was that something else unrelated I run a contraceptive clinic on a fortnightly basis and when I was beginning to learn about breathing I was suggesting to, to women to breathe in different ways so that um, it could help potentially pain relief and it was quite interesting what I observed when I was instructing them how to breathe in different ways and and actually how different women respond to different ways of you suggest to breathe. Um, But there was one lady that had had, um, she has given me permission to discuss this anonymously. She'd had a very traumatic birth and approached me and said, I I just, I can't face the thought of getting pregnant. I want something reliable. Can you, can you please fit a coil as, as soon as possible? I can't bear the thought of getting pregnant again. And so I I arranged it and she came in and she was in a complete fight flight state, literally shaking with fear because obviously the last time she'd been examined, it was a very traumatic experience. 
And I brought her in and I checked that she still wanted the coil fitted. But it was quite obvious I wasn't physically going to be able to fit it because she was shaking and her muscles were so contracted. And she said, please don't, you've got to fit this thing. And so I put a, a lay, I asked her to lay down and I thought, this, this is not going to be possible. So I thought, well, the only thing I can do is I'll, I'll get her to breathe in a way that tries to calm her down. And being honest, I, I, I sat at my computer and I thought, I'll just give her five minutes and then it, I'll have to ask her to leave because it's not going to be possible. Right. And in the corner of my eye, I kid you not, she melted into the couch. Like, I wow. cannot tell you, her just her complete muscles melted. I then looked at my assistant and we looked at each other and thought, right, we'll fit the coil. I fitted the coil. I had to tap her on the shoulder to say, um, I've finished now. I oh put her gosh. in a, the breathing putter in her profound. Honestly, it was it. I moved her from the sympathetic state, so that fight mm. flight response, into a profound parasympathetic state, a relaxation spot. She was still awake, but she had really very little recollection that had fitted it. And the three of us <laughs> sat there in the room and just actually said, "What on earth happened?" <laughs> and it was at that moment, yeah, I thought, what just happened. <laughs> It was like I'd given her a sedative. It really was like I'd given her a benzodiazepine injection. It was profound. How extraordinary. Well, we will definitely come on to learning that technique. Let's go back to basics, perhaps, because breathing is an automatic process. And I guess we don't think perhaps that we need to even think about it just because it's automatic. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're definitely breathing in the best or most efficient way, does it? Correct. Absolutely. And I've been a doctor a long time and I've learned so much about breathing because exactly as you say, I was taught that breathing is like this and this happens. But actually, there's a spectrum of breathing efficiency. So an individual can breathe efficiently or an individual can breathe really inefficiently. And there's a spectrum in between. And for example, when I started snoring, I slipped down that ladder and I wasn't breathing efficiently. But what was interesting was I didn't think there was anything wrong with how I breathe because I still was running three times a week at that point. I have a healthy weight. I didn't feel breathless. Um, and I remember the moment when I, I actually looked at the definition of sleep disorder breathing and I actually thought, oh, my goodness, I have sleep disorder breathing. And I felt quite negative about it because I thought, well, that can't be right. But it clearly was because I was heavily snoring. Um, so you don't always sometimes realise if you're breathing inefficiently, but your body will always ensure that you're breathing because it's a survival beast and it wants to stay alive. So, it, But the body will make so many different adaptations to ensure that you're getting that oxygen in and you're releasing the carbon dioxide but that can lead to symptoms in other systems or other areas of the body. That is completely fascinating now I'm going to have to pick up on this point you know because speaking you know within this circle of trust I'm going to share with you that I am also a menopausal light snorer mm -hmm. and I only discovered this actually fairly recently because I installed a sleep app on my oh. phone and although my, my phone is turned off, obviously, when, I, when I'm in bed and, and, and going to sleep, it actually records snoring. And I remember the first time I woke up and I, and I clicked it to see, you know, what my level of sleep was and my REM and all of that that it tracks. And I was absolutely mortified to hear, you know, that I could be snoring. Yeah. And I'm not aware that I've ever done that in, in previous years. Are we, I mean, is menopausal snoring a thing? And if so... Is it governed by hormones? I mean, what's actually going on here? Why do we snore? 
Exactly. So this is my journey. So I was, well, why am I snoring? This is ridiculous. Um, and there is evidence and there's a lot of evidence that women have a steep rise in sleep disordered breathing as they transition through perimenopause to menopause. And even when the scientists correct for weight, um, because of course, if you put on weight, you would be more likely to snore. But even when they remove that, there is still a steep rise as women transition through. So this is a thing. And from my experience, because obviously I start to ask my patients um, some time ago, and I generally have to signpost the question because it seems a bit odd, but you know, your symptoms sometimes could be related to the way you breathe when you're asleep. Can I ask, are you breathing with your mouth open? Are you snoring? Do you have noisy breathing? Do you have gaps in breathing? And the amount of women who actually rather sadly laugh and uh, describe their snoring that's rattling walls, their partner digging their elbow into their ribs to make them breathe again. And not infrequently, they laugh. And actually, it's associated with really quite negative health outcomes. And this is why I, I want to raise awareness, because we can change how we breathe when we're awake. And that helps our breathing when we're asleep. Really? So are we sort of conditioning our body to breathe in a different way by consciously doing it during the day while we're aware of our breathing? Do we then carry that legacy through the nighttime when we're asleep and we're not conscious of it? Exactly. So if somebody's asleep, and they've got those things I've just described, noisy breathing, gaps in breathing, snoring, that automatically means you're not breathing as efficiently as you could be whilst asleep. And because you're asleep, that is your unconscious breathing pattern. So you can retrain your body, you can re-educate your body to breathe better in the day. Now, obviously, it's not an overnight fix because you have to consciously make changes whilst awake so that over time you develop those new muscle memory and nerve connections that then it becomes an unconscious process. Mm -hmm. So generally, the neuroscientists say that takes around three months to do. However, you experience benefits before then. That's extraordinary. So what sort of changes can we make? What's the right way then to be consciously breathing during the day to set us up for the night? If you think about it, there's there's two aspects to it. So if we think about the actual tube that we're breathing in and out of, so the airway that we're breathing in and out of, we want that airway to be as open as possible, as strong as possible, and combined with nasal breathing. So that's the first aspect of it. And we can dig into that a bit more. Mm -hmm. And then the second aspect, which is the aspect that is a little bit more tricky to explain, is we have to think about the volume of air that we're bringing in and out of our body. If we try and make it easy for people to understand. So if you, I went to a cafe and I had a, uh, I'd ordered a thick milkshake and they said I had to drink it with a paper straw. I know it's a thick milkshake, so I'm going to choose a paper straw that's that's wide and that's strong. So that's like the airway. And then when I'm trying to take that milkshake into my mouth, I know that if I suck hard and fast with a big volume of milkshake, that straw is more likely to vibrate or collapse. And that is snoring is the vibration and obstructive sleep apnea, the gaps in breathing is when it collapses. But you can retrain your body to breathe the volume it 
is meant to breathe. So with that milkshake, if we breathe slower Mm. and with a smaller volume, it's less likely to vibrate or collapse. And a lot of us over-breathe. A lot of us over-breathe in modern-day society. So by over-breathing, do you mean that we're breathing too rapidly and too deeply? So we are breathing in excess of our body's requirements. So with the volume, we most of us only need about six litres a minute of air. Some people with asthma might actually be breathing 15 litres a minute. As soon as you switch from nose to mouth breathing, there was a study that showed you are breathing 800 millilitres more air every minute. And there's an energy cost to that as well. So you, we want to breathe yes. clearly, but we want to breathe the volume of air our body requires for that moment, not over-breathe. That is very interesting because I would have thought, actually, you know, before we started this conversation, that you'd be telling me to actually, Liz, take deeper breaths. You need more air in your lungs and that's going to calm you down and help the parasympathetic nervous system, not, not less breath. We don't want people to under-breathe all the time because clearly you need a certain amount of air coming in, but we want it to match what our body requires. And unfortunately, the way that we're living in modern day society, because we're not necessarily living as we've been biologically programmed to live, it tends to fuel people over breathing. Mm. Um, So if you go to the supermarket, as you're driving along, look at, obviously without crashing, look at, look at, people and just how many people are mouth breathing as soon as you're Mm. mouth breathing you're you are set up that your body's not breathing as it was designed to do a a newborn baby just nasal breathes so we've been designed to nasal breathe but we're over breathing and what happens then is there's all sorts of adaptations to that but also we think that if we breathe if we breathe slower we actually got more chance of moving the diaphragm because if we if we breathe fast we tend to breathe with our upper chest and we're not actually then moving the diaphragm and when you when we breathe with our diaphragm that does help that parasympathetic response um it is more calming but if we're breathing fast and with the mouth you're less likely to be using your diaphragm right okay so i'm sitting here making a very conscious effort to keep my mouth closed tricky when we're talking obviously uh <laughs> It, this seems to be the, the the sort of number one takeaway that I'm getting for the moment is that always through the nose. Yeah. And to come back to my earlier question about snoring and making sure that your mouth is closed, something that I started doing recently was mouth taping. Are you a fan of that? Absolutely. So, but I will put a caveat on there. So one of the things to get that airway open, so we need that airway open. If the mouth is open, the tongue is in the wrong, it's too far back in the airway because the tongue is part of the back of the tongue is part of the airway. And as soon as we've got the mouth open, the tongue is only connected, it's a muscle, but it's only connected at one end to a bone and the bone is under the tongue. So by definition, you open your mouth, your tongue is either bottom of the mouth or mid cavity, which means it's too far back and it's narrowing the airway. So you can experiment. I don't know if you want to do it now. Definitely. Go on. Okay. So Let's go. It, it does work better if you're laid down. So but, but <laughs> okay. it doesn't matter. You're, you're up. But, mm-hmm. but do, it as, do it tonight when you're in bed because it's mm. profound. Um, so if you open your mouth now, your mm-hmm. tongue will be in the bottom of your mouth or mid cavity. Uh-huh. And I yeah. want you to breathe in. Um, but listen to the, the sound as you breathe in and feel what happens at the back of the throat. So I'll do it too. So... I'm hearing the noise of me breathing and I'm feeling there's a bit of obstruction at the back. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay. Now, now close your mouth, mm-hmm. but keep your tongue in the wrong place. Keep it at the bottom of your mouth, uh-huh. and then breathe in. Listen and feel. Mm. It does depend on your <laughs> does depend on your jaw. Your mm-hmm. it'll be quieter. Mm-hmm. It'll but you still probably got obstruction at the back. Yeah. But then if yeah. you put there's a cor- there's a correct place for the tongue. Mm. Um, and I I've been a doctor a long time and I didn't know this, but the tongue should actually be up on the roof of the mouth mm. so the the tongue should be flat against the roof of the mouth mm-hmm. um with a little bit of suction and as you're doing that you'll actually feel because it's attached underneath your chin you'll feel the skin under your chin slightly tighten up which is an, an aesthetically rather nice i'm definitely tighter on my chin than i used to be. i was going to say that's very good i, I that was a, a tip i learned from a photographer yeah. years ago when i was having my picture taken they said if you want to tighten up your jawline yeah press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and it really works i do it to this day but i don't do it while i'm in bed and asleep so but the, is that something when we go to bed then should, should we be thinking all the time keep your tongue pressed up to the roof of your mouth obviously when you're asleep it'll it'll just revert back to what your general unconscious pattern is so if if a lot of us a lot of us are a mouth breathing so by definition if you're mouth breathing in the day then your tongue's just being trained to be in the wrong place so like that photographer said if i mean i say to people do the tongue routine so every time they um get a glass of water flip the kettle on go to the toilet wash your hands just say tongue and put that put that tongue flat on the roof of the mouth um, with a little bit of suction but the tongue is really a very strong muscle. So you, you don't want sort of wonky teeth at the front. So put the tip of the tongue on the ridge of tissue that's just above the back of the front teeth. And you want to make sure your lips are sealed, but you don't want to clench your jaw. So you could have your teeth in light contact. Um, for me, I generally clench them. So I like to have a, like a, a couple of mils gap between. Um, and you do actually, if you've, if you've not been doing that you actually ache on your cheekbones and you ache under your chin mm. probably for a week mm. or two but if you if you do that routine with those activities every day for three months and then you you get your mouth closed at night mm-hmm. then that frees the airway up and you you would develop that muscle memory those nerve connections that it becomes unconscious if people do it when they're in bed, asleep, they do those different positions. It's quite marked how how much more freer it feels at the back of the throat. So it's going to be much less likely to snore or collapse. But you do need to get the mouth closed. Um, now, I, I like um, when I'm working with individuals, I like to use a product where it goes around the mouth. And the reason being is if you tape across the mouth and someone has a very high breathing volume, you've not corrected that with that individual. And then that individual might have to still release that air until they've retrained their body. And what can happen if you fully tape and you ha- and that happens, you can get mouth puffing. So you're, it's where someone's trying to release the, the air through the mouth tape but they can't um, and then that actually can slightly obstruct the airway at the back whereas the product that that I used initially mm-hmm. was um, myotape so it was designed by Patrick McEwen and it goes around the mouth it's put on with some elastic tension and you stretch it by 30% stick it on 
And then when you're relaxed, it closes the mouth. But if your body did need to breathe out some excess air, it can override that and do that. So I like people to start off with something yes. around the mouth. But then I, I fully mouth tape now because mm-hmm. I've got no problem now. My breathing volume's fine. Mm. Um, but if what I know about the importance of nasal breathing when you're asleep, um, I want to ensure my mouth is, is closed. How fascinating. So mouth taping, is this something that everybody could consider whether they're a snorer or not? Is it actually going to be more beneficial for us when we sleep to tape our mouths to make sure that we're only ever using our nose? The, certainly it is something, if if you think that you're breathing with your nose whilst asleep and you're fairly sure of that, then there's, there's no need to do that because that's okay. But how do you know that? Obviously, if you're waking up in the morning and your mouth is terribly dry, you're coughing, you're wheezing, you've got nasal congestion on wakening, you've got a headache, those things are suggestive that you are mouth breathing at night. And certainly that is something that people could consider. However, the tongue position and getting the mouth closed is one aspect of it. Obviously, strengthening up the muscle of the airway is another aspect of it. And that will work for some people just doing that because, again, it depends on how inefficient your breathing is. But you ideally want to train your body so that you're not over breathing. And that Mm. that sometimes is the the bit that can be difficult if someone is excessively over breathing or excessively sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. That bit can be more tricky to train, but perfectly trainable. You mentioned carbon dioxide. Can you explain how oxygen and carbon dioxide, how they each play a role in our breathing pattern? When we breathe in, obviously, we take oxygen into our body. And then as we're breathing out, we get rid of the waste product, carbon dioxide. But carbon dioxide, it's not just a waste product. We need carbon dioxide to help release oxygen to the cells of our body. So a common misconception that people have is when you're... So if I say to you, perhaps, Liz, right, we'll go, we're going to both walk up a hill but we're just going to maintain nasal breathing. So we'll march up that hill. And then at some point you would start to, both of us would start to feel sort of slightly suffocated. We'd feel what what I call air hunger. So you're starting to feel um, suffocated. And the common thought process then is I've dropped my oxygen levels and I've got to open my mouth to breathe. At that point, when you experience air hunger, it's often not that your oxygen level has dropped. What's happened is your carbon dioxide has reached your personal tolerance level. So we have chemoreceptors, so receptors in the back of the brain, in the breathing center that detect carbon dioxide. And it's personal to us. So it has a we have a personal sensitivity to that. So as we walk up that hill, when you when either of us would feel that air hunger, we've reached our carbon dioxide tolerance. However, you can train your body to be more tolerant to that. And the reason why that's an advantage is when carbon dioxide's around, it helps release oxygen to the tissues. So then that means that your body becomes much more efficient in oxygen delivery and you can breathe slower and more gentler and your body feels calmer it, mm-hmm. It's much calmer, the body, when you breathe slowly and gently. And that's what's so critical when people are asleep, that if people are noisy with their breathing, they've got gaps in breathing, that triggers that fight flight response. Mm-hmm. And when we're asleep, we don't want we want that to be turned down. Mm-hmm. We want our body to feel safe, to go into more of that parasympathetic response 
so it can go into those incredible repair processes that happen when we're asleep. That's completely fascinating. So I do occasionally walk up steep hills and I certainly go out for power walks and and runs and I notice that my breathing does change and and that I am perhaps using my mouth, uh, a little bit of kind of huffing and puffing. Are you saying then that we should be aware of that and train our breathing so that we perhaps breathe in through our nose still, but but expel more air maybe through the mouth? Or how would we get that balance to, to be to be different? So the most efficient breathing is in and out of the nose. The least efficient breathing is in and out of the mouth. And a halfway house would be breathing in through the nose, but out through the mouth. The reason why it feels easier when you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth when you're exercising is because you're feeling that air hunger, you're feeling that sense of suffocation, but you're blowing off that excess carbon dioxide out of your mouth. So it lessens that feeling of air hunger. What I would say is have a have an understanding that when you feel air hunger, it's not necessarily a bad thing. So one option could be to sort of to either um, slow down the walking or even just to pause and just to try and sort of continue the activity with some tolerable air hunger. So not enough Mm -hmm. to cause distress or a panic, because obviously a feeling Mm -hmm. of suffocation can induce panic, but just to sort of ease off the gas a little bit or just slow down. And then if you can sit with a tolerable air hunger, it actually retrains your your chemoreceptors to be more tolerant. However, I would say it's probably there's certain exercises I teach on my courses where it's easier to do it at rest and then it becomes easier to do the exercise with just um, nasal breathing. But it, it very much depends on people's sensitivity to carbon dioxide. You know, if people have particularly long COVID, POTS, often asthma, mm-hmm. there's certain conditions that they would be very sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. I had one patient with asthma who I just asked them to close their mouth for one minute and I timed them on my phone just to check that they could actually breathe through their nose for one minute and they could, but they got air hunger just from having their mouth closed for one minute. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, stay there, Louise. We'll come back in a moment because I really want to drill into some of those conditions that you talk about and, of course, chat menopause and hormonal health in relation to better breathing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, Louise, I'd love to pick up on some of those things that you mentioned earlier. In particular, we talked a little bit about snoring and about the impact during your journey was during perimenopause. Mine has actually been postmenopause. What are hormones doing here? Because presumably that is having some impact on our breath. Is that our our fluctuating oestrogen levels? It's something to do with hormones. As you can imagine, Liz, there's not enough research on it. So we need more. We need more (laughs) research on it. Um, So it happens. Um, It's it's quite clear it happens. And um, the the sleep consultants uh, quite clearly, I was on a lecture recently and without me saying anything, he you know, menopause is a risk factor for sleep disordered breathing. Certainly it's thought to be to do with the progesterone. So progesterone has a role in keeping the muscles tight in the throat. And then as we transition through to postmenopause, we lose that muscle tone that that progesterone has given us. So it's thought to be something to do with that. But then you would think if you replace that, then it should get better. Mm -hmm. And it's very much mixed, the evidence on whether HRT helps snoring and um, sleep apnea. And certainly, I think it does work in some women, but not not everyone. So I think it's more complicated than that. Um, The other thing, of course, is we know that if we're certainly from it's normally around age 30 to 40 if we're not exercising if we're not if we're not training muscles to keep strong they're going to get weaker there's no difference in there with our breathing muscles you know we talk about resistance training but we're not talking about are we tightening up the the throat muscles the tongue muscles to keep that airway open are we doing breathing exercises to make our diaphragm strong are we doing muscle exercises for the, the muscles that are involved with taking a breath in? So inspiratory muscle training, because all these muscles help bring air in and out of their body. And if we're not actively training those, then they're not going to be as strong. So that is going to impact how we breathe. There's also a difference between women and men. We, believe it or not, our ribs are hung onto our spine differently than men. So men's ribs are stuck onto the spine horizontally. Ours are stuck on at at an angle, presumably to make room so it could move up for us to be able to be pregnant. But that does predispose us to be more upper chest breathers, whereas men would probably be more diaphragmatic breathers. What I would say, though, is 
there's always more men than women that have sleep disordered breathing at any age, but there is a steep rise in women as we go through the menopause. Mm. And obviously sleep disordered breathing is associated with dementia, increased risk of heart attack, stroke, accidents, Mm -hmm. death because people fall asleep at the wheel, functional problems with uh, memory and concentration and focus. Mm. No, over the years, I've definitely moved sleep up my priority list and and realised that it's something that we need to protect and preserve and that, you know, I need to absolutely prioritise. I'm fascinated by what you say there. A couple of things I'd like to come back on. The link with progesterone, presumably there could be a study looking, or maybe there's already been one, looking at women who've had hysterectomies and who aren't prescribed progesterone, even if they're taking HRT, so they wouldn't have any necessarily or would have very, very low levels in their body systemically to see whether they're more predisposed to sleep disorders or snoring? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, The only thing I would say is, um, and it's interesting with progesterone, because progesterone is also a respiratory stimulant. So what I mean from that is it makes us breathe faster. So when they've looked at women who are menstruating and then they have at different points in their cycle, the progesterone goes very high, those women actually breathe faster. So their resting breathing rate would go higher Mm. than at the times when their progesterone isn't as high. And this, obviously, if you're an athlete, can you imagine Mm -hmm. racing when your breathing rate is at a lower level compared to racing when it's already at a high level before you've even started exercising? That's going to massively impact your performance. Now, I think there is some work being done with regard to looking at that hormones and the effect of athletic performance so that that could help but i have to say trying to get funding for doing um, any sort of breathing work is really difficult because it's not a company that's pushing it sure let alone yeah looking at midlife and menopausal women who are always the, the, the bottom of the list when it comes to research anyway fascinating so if you're taking your progesterone at bedtime which i know we're encouraged to do because progesterone can make us feel a little bit sleepy is that going to be a good thing then if that encourages us to breathe faster it is it's really interesting um I think it depends, Liz, because I can't I can't get my head around it because obviously the the women that I see privately already know they've got breathing inefficiency problems and that's why I'm trying to help them breathe better. And then the the women that I'm seeing at the surgery, I haven't got the time to do a deep dive in it, but I suspect the way that potentially you could respond in a positive or negative way to sleep disorder breathing with progesterone probably depends on on your breathing efficiency because obviously there's a spectrum of how inefficient you're breathing so that will impact Mm -hmm. it and also the there's different ways of people that have sleep apnea so when people actually have gaps in breathing there's actually different what we call phenotypes there's different reasons why people are having gaps in breathing so I think it would depend on what phenotype you were what breathing efficiency were and whether that whether progesterone would be helpful because obviously it's going to make you breathe faster but it would make your throat stronger potentially so this is why I think I we get mixed responses to whether it helps or not and I think that would make it difficult 
to run a trial, but I'm not a research doctor. So. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think actually kind of moving on from that, many of us will probably notice that in a stressful or a nerve wracking situation during the day, our breathing changes and it might become more shallow, it might become more rapid. What's actually happening there? You know, is this uh, physiologically bad for us or is this a protective mechanism that the body's then implementing? Exactly. So this is all to do with us being biologically programmed to survive, isn't it? So that's why breathing is so linked to that autonomic nervous system, that the nervous system that controls the unconscious processes. So if you can imagine, I, I was out running and a dog accidentally got let off the lead and I thought it was going to attack me. So how did I breathe just spontaneously in response to a potential dog attack? I started to breathe open mouth, upper chest. It was loud. I held my breath after the inhale. So that I breathed in that way and then that sends a signal up to my brain and there's a connection between your breathing center and the amygdala, which is involved in fear. You're breathing in that way. And then that sends those signals around your body that quick, you need to, you know, either fight or run away or play dead. So your mm -hmm. body, all those unconscious processes go into that mode of protecting that individual. So then we've got to think if we don't want to be in fight flight mode, if we want to be in the opposite system, that parasympathetic or be more driven by that parasympathetic system. We want to breathe in the opposite way, in and out of the nose, slow, gentle, quiet, and actually the exhale be longer than the inhale. And then if you breathe in that way, then that actually sends a signal to the brain, everything is safe, we can now relax. And that's how we need breathing to be when we're asleep. That's interesting. And I've heard that said before. I remember actually when I talked to James Nestor on this show, and which I mentioned in the intro, one of the takeaways that I got from that was that if we want to calm ourselves simply through breathing, one of the easiest ways to do it is to make sure that your exhale is longer than your inhale. And I do catch myself sometimes in stressful situations actually you know implementing that remembering that thinking right okay I'm just going to breathe in maybe for a count of two or three even but it's out for you know four or five or, or even longer so can that work generally as a sort of golden rule to keep us calm when we're feeling anxious absolutely yes because the the in breath the inhale is generally more sympathetically driven more fight flight driven and the exhale is generally more parasympathetically driven so if you make the exhale longer, you're steering your body to be more parasympathetically driven, definitely. Um, now, the only thing I would say is there are some people who are incredibly sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. So if you ask that individual to close their mouth and to, say, breathe in for four and out for six, literally in some people, you'll, you'll, make, you'll put them in a panic attack because... If you ask an individual to close their mouth and breathe in through their nose for four seconds and breathe out of their nose for six seconds quietly, in some people who are very sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide, that would generate air hunger and potentially make, make them feel really quite panicked. Um, and that's what I observed when I was doing the contraceptive clinic. So the lady I discussed, I asked her to close her mouth, to breathe in and out of the nose quietly and to breathe at six breaths per minute. So in for four seconds and out for six seconds. And that put her in a profound parasympathetic state. Wow. I did that with some other patients and I, I made them feel absolutely dreadful. Oh absolutely <laughs> dreadful. 
And the difference now, in retrospect, I understand what it is, is that those individuals, they are probably over breathing quite a bit. And then it's made them be very sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. So when you ask them to breathe quietly in and out of the nose and really slowly, it's too much for them. And then that's why you would then want to try and retrain their body to be less sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. That's fascinating. And I think that's a really good point, actually, for those of us who want to do that either for ourselves or maybe you're trying to help somebody keep calm in a stressful situation. You know, you do say, sit down, take it slowly, you know, slow your breathing. And if we were encouraging them to do that and, you know, in through the nose for a count of four, out through the nose for a count of six, presumably within a minute or two, you'd be able to tell whether that was going to work or not for that person and if it wasn't working you'd say absolutely you know stop that just perhaps do the same length of time but just do in and out through the mouth you can do but again you're not going you're not going to calm down because if your mouth breathing you're more likely to generate that fight flight response so um i suppose what what you could just try and say instead of saying breathing at a certain rate just trying to get their mouth closed and just getting them just to do nasal breathing. There is an exercise that I teach that is a very, very gentle exercise that we that we use uh, when people are sensitive to the buildup of of carbon dioxide because if if someone is breathing really fast and can't calm down, when you tell them to slow their breathing down, it's really difficult to do that, isn't it? How because mm. if you're really sort of panicking, mm-hmm. and we we can just add a little breath holding, mm. gentle breath in through nose, gentle breath out through nose, and pinch and hold the nose. Now, depending on someone's sensitivity to it, you might even just hold it for one second, then you let go. You breathe in and out of the nose, just the person's normal breathing pattern for maybe 10, 15 seconds. And then you do it again, breathe in through the nose, out through the nose, pinch and hold. And then if they can hold for a little bit longer, maybe two seconds, and you could go up to five seconds depending on their and of how they feel. But what you're doing with that exercise is you are gently slowing that person's mm-hmm. breathing down by adding in a pause, a very short pause. Uh, we call it small breath holds after the exhale because we're making the exhale a bit longer, but it's an easier way to do it because you're just holding your breath just for one or two seconds. And then it helps that individual calm down. So that can be, um, and if someone can tolerate it, they could hold for five seconds. And that can be really calming for people who are very sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide. So what you're saying there is you breathe in and out and then you hold. So I've read breathing protocols where you breathe in, you hold and then you breathe out. But you're saying actually to go in, then out and then hold that that's the better option. It depends with when you when you change your breathing. So when someone um, has a breathing exercise, they are literally changing the physiology. So it depends what you what you want to do. So obviously the situation you just described is someone is breathing fast and maybe is feeling a bit anxious. We want to calm that individual down. So as as James Nestor said, if you make the exhale longer, you will bring on more of a relaxation response. So if the aim of doing that breathing practice is to calm someone down it would be better to do a hold after the exhale because you're making that exhale you're tricking the body the exhale is longer than the inhale yes Um, Yes. got it obviously if you do if you do box breathing which you know as you say you breathe in and hold and then breathe out and then hold the actual inhale and the exhale are the same aren't they yeah 
Got you. And why would you do box breathing? Why would you do that technique rather than the calming one? At what point would you use box breathing? When would when would that be helpful? So for me, um, my role when I'm when I'm helping people breathe, my role is to help someone breathe efficiently. So my breathing exercises are completely. It's just about getting that person to breathe efficiently. So I want to do exercises that improve carbon dioxide tolerance and most of them are probably more to drive a parasympathetic response because often people that are breathing inefficiently, there, there may be an element, there's, there's some stress there as well. It's, it's nuanced with breathing because it's it, breathing, it depends on what, what do you want the outcome to be. So with right. me, it would be, yeah. be the outcome, I want to improve breathing efficiency. But if you're, if you're already breathing efficiently, it might be you want to shift between the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So if you were doing a box breathing, you're shifting because you're doing a hold after the inhale, then you're doing a hold after the exhale. So you're sort of switching between the two um, sides of the autonomic nervous system. Got you. And last question here, which I guess is the opposite of all of that, is thinking about our modern lifestyles now during the day. And I know personally, I spend a lot of time writing. I'm on a screen a lot and sometimes I realized I haven't actually breathed for a while so actually not breathing presumably that is obviously if you take that to extreme is a seriously bad thing but why is it why why do we suddenly sort of realize that gosh I haven't actually had any proper breath and what steps could we take practically to make sure that we don't do that well there is actually a condition called um, email apnea so um, someone <laughs> I think I people... have that <laughs> so I, think, I think you've just described that um, so someone um observed people's breathing whilst they were as you describe on the computer but I think it does happen with text messages as well mm. and people tend to hold their breath after the inhale which obviously extends the inhale which drives that fight flight ah, response okay and then the exhale will be very short now obviously there's not been studies done on the long-term complications of that obviously there isn't the research there but but it definitely has been noted that it you know it does it does happen so i suppose it is it's it's making sure that tongue's in the correct position um, mm -hmm. trying to just keep coming back to reminding yourself of nasal breathing and i suppose just having a a tiny mindset on on your breathing and when you when you when you start to tap into how you breathe you do develop this mind body breath connection so you you notice when you're maybe holding your breath, as you're saying, then it's coming back, isn't it? To to then, right, let's just try and breathe in and then breathe out sort of softly and gently through, in and out through the nose. But what does naturally happen if you, I spend a lot of time on the, my individual and group programs teaching people to become more tolerant to, to carbon dioxide. And what's beautiful about it is it naturally happens that as you become more tolerant to the buildup of carbon dioxide the breathing just becomes like that so you breathe in and the exhale then becomes longer than the inhale this actually becomes a slight pause after the exhale before you get that drive to breathe in again because you'll become quite tolerant to the buildup of carbon dioxide so that resting unconscious pattern just naturally becomes like that and I've felt that within myself, but obviously I see it with other individuals as well. So the, the carbon dioxide part of it is probably the more, more difficult bit to teach, but it's the bit that I think is just so incredibly powerful. Absolutely fascinating. Louise, thank you so much. I'm sitting here so much more aware now of how I'm breathing and I'm definitely going to be putting 
everything that you've talked about there into practice and I'm sure feeling so much better for it. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show and to talk us through it all. So thank you again. Well, thank you very much, Liz. Oh, Louise, what a fascinating deep dive into something many of us might never have given much thought to before. few things that I've scribbled down on my notepad here. And one is that I am clearly or was a perimenopausal and am now a menopausal snorer, something that I need perhaps to address. And also email apnea. Who knew that was even a thing? Yep, hands up. I am definitely in that category. And texting. Have you noticed that? That if you're texting, perhaps something slightly tricky or stressful, that you do tend to hold your breath. So yeah, next time you reach for your phone or your laptop, just think about it. Think about how your breathing is actually going to better enable you to manage that potentially stressful situation and response, maybe. Anyway, lots more about breathwork and meditation, and of course, lots more besides over on lizardwellbeing.com. I really hope that you find all the articles and the resources there that we have, which are free to look at, useful as well. And coming up in the next few weeks, histamine and possibly dirty genes, spelt G-E-N-E-S, of course, not the denim kind, and fasting for menopausal women. Do make sure that you're here for those chats by following the podcast wherever you are listening to this right now. And if you'd rather listen to those episodes uninterrupted by ads, you absolutely can. Just subscribe to the Lizard Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And you'll also get episodes 24 hours early there too. Well, until the next time we chat, don't forget to breathe. Go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Nushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.